This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. But this is our Christmas edition of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark along with Rick and Ron. And Ron, I know you just returned from Germany, right? Yes, sir. Hamburg, is that right? Hamburg, exactly right. Home, not the home of the Hamburger. Oh. <laughs> I was going to ask if they have any McDonald's or Burger Kings there, no? They do. I ate at one, actually. Just like you today. Congratulations. Well, was it dressed up for the holidays? And, and what did you learn about the country or the Hofbrows while you were there? Well, you know, the one thing Germany's famous for is its Christmas markets, you know, which are outdoor kind of shopping areas, all kinds of locally made food, drinks, and gifts, and uh, things of that nature. People really flock to them uh, in the evenings uh, during this time of year. You know, sadly, as you guys probably are aware, you know, one in France was recently uh, victimized by a terrorist attack, and that's also happened in Germany in the past. Uh, so there's more security around than, uh, than there used to be. First time I was, I was at one was a number of years ago in Berlin. Uh, and that can be a little unnerving, you know, if you let it uh, if you let it unnerve you. You guys have known me a long time. I'm not easily unnerved. So I was happy to go and say, Danke to Germany for the Christmas market. Love them. Uh, especially with a little struggle to go. All good. Yeah, I, I didn't see any gifts under the tree from you, Ron. Uh, hey, quick question. <laughs> a little, good, uh, little from, German chocolate. From what you could gather, what's the biggest difference between Christmas there and here? Actually, to be honest, you know, other than the language itself, not much. I mean, they're really into okay. it, as we are. Yeah, lights all over the place, Christmas trees oh, cool. in the mall, shops and everything like that. So uh, I think uh, when it comes to uh, Christmas and you parachute it in there, you'd think you're in the U.S. of A. until they start talking. Then you just say Danka, like I did. Okay. Well, I'm going to say Danka to you and uh, say Danka to our guest today because we have one of our favorite quarterbacks of all time, the former star quarterback, Billy Kilmer, my favorite author du jour, that's Mark Leibovich, who just wrote Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times, which should give you and everyone else uh, as a Christmas gift. I am. I'm giving it. Uh, but that's not all. Good friend of ours from Baltimore, John Eisenberg, is with us. Talk about his book, The League. How Five Rivals Cleared the NFL and Launched an Empire, which chronicles five of the most influential figures in the history of the NFL. Very good to hear from all of them, and we will. But first, we're going to hear this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, something I heard the other day that, that I did not know. Ron, there's a lot I don't there's know. A lot of that this one I did, yeah, that's right. And, and that's that 75 to 80% of Christmas trees in this country are artificial. Really, artificial. Now, I know when we lived in Hawaii when I was a kid, and that was a long time ago, but we had artificial trees... But not since then. In fact, nowadays we go to a tree farm in town every year, and, and we cut down our tree. Sure. Do you guys have or, or ever have artificial trees, Ron? Oh, never. Are you kidding me? Not that, in New yeah, England right. and not yeah, in California. That's right. I mean, yeah. there's no such thing as an artificial tree. It's a tree that bleeds sap and turns brown and dies in your house, or not a tree. Well, well, well Ron, there is, an artific- there is such a thing as artificial trees. That's the ones that, that, that spout those Bill Belichick coaches everywhere. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's, a, a, that's a little, that's a coaching bush. That's like a coaching a bush. bush. Hey, Goose, do you, have, uh, have you ever had artificial oh. trees? 
Yeah, welcome to Dallas, guys. I've had one for years. <laughs> Looks great every year. Put in a box, <laughs> shove in the closet, take it out again in 12 months, lights stay on the tree, all we have to do is decorate, and guess what, guys? It's never fallen over on me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Touche. I guess he's never moving to New England, Ron. Uh, <laughs> I guess maybe when I'm as old as you are, Ron, maybe, just maybe I'd consider it, or maybe if I moved to Dallas, but, uh, I, I, you know, I didn't miss the smell of that tree too much. It changes the entire room, and, and Goose... Does it ever make it feel a lot like Christmas? Clark, you can get a Yankee candle for that Christmas tree smell, and it works just as well. And there's never any sap on the rug. <laughs> I'm a Yankee fan. I'm a Yankee fan. You know, you know. actually, uh, uh, I, I helped you out a few weeks ago, did I not, with a Christmas tree stand. And now I can help you out with this. They yeah, actually you have a aromatic tree-smelling spray thing, authentic, biodegradable, organically made, blah, blah, blah. Your wife will love it. Makes the place smell like the big piney. (laughs) (laughs) Might use that for underarm deodorant, Ron. Thanks very much for the hint. Okay, in other news, I see where the NFL draft is going to your favorite town, Ron, Vegas for 2020. Yeah, you do. Once upon a time, the NFL wouldn't even put a team there, nor allow Tony Romo. Remember this? To hold some fantasy football event there. I know Goose remembers that. Uh, But but now, now it can't wait to wrap its arms around Wayne Newton, Teller and Penn, and one-armed bandits. So Vegas in the draft, Ron, like it or loathe it? Oh, love it. Are you kidding me? Imagine the prop bets. Odd on, odds on two guys being taken from Weber State, 25 <laughs> to 1. Seven school parlay that one of each goes in the first round. The mind boggles at the possibilities. Which guy wears the purple suit and which guy is the nitwit enough to wear a tuxedo with no shirt? He'll be drafted by Dallas, of course. Serious action. Loathe. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad for Canton because the NFL now puts money ahead of history, and it wasn't yeah. always that way. Yeah. Not yeah. when men like Hallis, Rooney, Mara, and Hunt owned the teams. Those guys were sportsmen first with an appreciation for the game's history. The new breed of owners are all businessmen first. Any sense of history is a very distant second. That draft belonged in the Canton-Cleveland area. Well, Ron, you've got an appreciation for history, but you've also got an appreciation for Vegas. And yes, I do. More times, I think, than you've been to parent-teacher meetings. <laughs> so uh, any advice for the NFL going to Las Vegas, especially with TMZ going to be there? Well, yes, I do. And I have a little, first, I have a little advice for the Gooseman. I have been to Canton. I have been to Cleveland. I have been in Vegas. I can vote in Vegas. <laughs> Go to Vegas. Uh, having said that, uh, I will say this. Despite rumors to the contrary these days, what happens in Vegas no longer stays in Vegas. That's right. Behave yourself, brother. Just ask Tiger Woods. <laughs> You're right about that. Okay, more news, guys. More news. Time Magazine announced its Person of the Year. And its One of us? Of the year actually was Persons of the Year. No, no, we didn't make it. It was the uh, Guardians, as in Guardians of the Truth. And I get us. it. That is us, but uh, we didn't get it. Uh, it was Guardians of the Truth. Uh, and these Guardians, they were guarding uh, the truth in an age where... Let's face it, someone could get suspended four games for having a general awareness of air. Jeez, don't get me started. So anyway, I'd like to take this opportunity to announce our first ever Talk of Fame Network Person of the Year. And Goose, because you're our guardian of the truth, you go first. Who is your Talk of Fame Network Person of the Year? 
It would have to be John Gruden. Mark Davis gave him a 10-year, $100 million contract to build the Raiders back into a Super Bowl contender. He's built a contender, all right. Two of them, in fact, the Bears and Cowboys. He traded a Pro Bowl pass rusher to the Bears. They've gone from worst to first in the NFC North. And he's also traded a Pro Bowl wide receiver to Dallas. The Cowboys are now on the verge of winning the NFC East. Man of the Year or Santa Claus? Ooh, good one. Uh, I'm going to go rogue on you. That'll surprise you. To me, it's the Sherlock Johnny Holmes from TMZ who found that <laughs> tape of Tyreek Hill going MMA on that poor co-ed from Kent State. Not only cost Tyreek, but before it's over, it's going to cost the Chiefs and elevate the Chargers. If we end up Wait. with an AFC title game in a 27,000-seat uh, stadium, we're going to thank one guy, Sherlock Johnny Holmes. <laughs> well, I'm going rogue, too. I'm going rogue, and I'm choosing Hall of Famer Terrell Owens. Oh, yeah, yeah. First for reach again, long before I thought he would. I thought it might be the year 25-25. And, and Shay, no need to accuse Zager and never, please. But second, for having the guts to stand up and reveal who he truly is, uh, that would be a narcissist who doesn't give a flip about anyone but Terrell Owens. For years, Ron, he and his sycophants, they told us that he's misunderstood. He doesn't get a fair shake, and he's not the selfish guy he's portrayed to be. Basically, that it was us, not him, that was at fault. But then... Well, then, when he gets what he wants, guess what? He doesn't show up at the Super Bowl to be honored. He doesn't show up the next day to have his gold jacket tailored. And ta-da! He doesn't show up, period, at the Hall of Fame induction, the first ever living inductee to blow off the celebration. Now, that takes guts. It also takes hubris, self-absorption, egomania, and a lack of consideration for all those who helped you get there. And congratulations to you. You checked all the boxes. You are my choice for the Talk of Fame Network's Person of the sneer <laughs> all rise here comes the judge now there's someone else who checked all the boxes in the career but unlike mr popcorn he wasn't divisive and he went a lot more than he lost and that's former raiders quarterback daryl lamonica ron loves it da, 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 da. the autumn wind. yeah well i wrote about daryl this week on our website that would be the maven.io slash talk of fame or you can just do talk of fame network it'll take you there and lamonica was someone who somehow has been lost in all this talk about quarterbacks who are deserving of hall of fame consideration because daryl lamonica is and i can tell you why in one word guys winning that's all he did just win baby and you can look it up his career record was 66 16 and 6 including the 62 and 16 6 performance for ron's oakland raiders where he won four straight division championships and one league title but winning came easily for daryl monica he was part of three league championships he was a two-time league mvp he led the league twice in touchdown passes and tied for league once in touchdown runs so what's not to like well critics point to his stats his completion percentage was 49.5, and that puts people off. I don't know why, but it does. But when you're known as the Mad Bomber and you play for Al Davis and the Raiders, you're not exactly throwing bubble screens and five-yard hitches, and Ron can explain that to you. You're throwing deep, and you're throwing deep again, again, and again. I mean, look at LaMonica's yards per completion. It was a staggering 14.9. Well, then, his critics say he gets knocked uh, because he played most of his career in the AFL. Except, well, that same AFL was 2-2 two and two against the NFL in Super Bowls. So then we move on to longevity. People say, well, he played basically six years as a starter. And you know something? They're right. But don't talk to me about longevity. Not after Terrell Davis. You can't. And in those six years, all he did was win. He's 13-1 in 67, 11-2 in 68, 12-1-1 in 69, and 69 he set a league record by throwing six touchdown passes in one half. 1969, people. Only one player, and that's Aaron Rodgers, has since equaled it. So he won championships, three of them. He was a league MVP, twice. He was a passing leader. He won 75% of his starts. 
what's not to like? Not much and certainly not enough to keep him from getting an audience with Hall of Fame voters. Like you said, LaMonica won three championships. Wasn't he the backup quarterback on two of them in Buffalo? So was. who was the better backup quarterback, Daryl LaMonica or Tom Flores? Another Hall of Fame uh, th- That's an easy one, Daryl LaMonica. I mean, compare his numbers to Flores. I mean, LaMonica won 75% of his starts. Flores didn't win 50. He was 31, 33, and 4. Wasn't an MVP. Didn't win league championships and led the NFL only once in anything. And that was completion percentage. It was 54% in 1960. And as a backup quarterback, remember, Daryl LaMonica tied for the co-lead in touchdown rushes. That's true. Anyway, that's going to do it. All our Talk of Fame Network persons of the year can contact Ron for their take-home prizes. I think he brought some home from Germany, right, Ron? I did, a bag full. Ho, ho, ho. Good. Send some this way, would you please? Up next is author John Eisenberg here to talk about five giants who transformed the NFL. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Former Baltimore Sun columnist John Eisenberg's 10th book was released this fall, and it's a must-read for anyone who wants to understand how the NFL survived its early days and grew into the sports giant that it is today. It's called The League, How Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire. And it tells the story of perhaps the five most influential people in NFL history. That would be Burt Bell, George Hallis, George Preston Marshall, Art Rooney, and Tim Mara. I mean, all are considered founding fathers and saviors of the league during its financially troubled days in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And John explains how a bookie, a horse player, a racist who washed shirts, Philadelphia Playboy and the son of a Czech emigre who was supposed to become an engineer actually created the NFL. So today, well, today we've asked him to come here with a sports writer, a sports writer, and a Tom Brady slash Burt Jones honk to explain <laughs> it to us. So, John, thanks for saying yes. Welcome to our show. Uh, well, it is my pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm uh, pleased to be on with you guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, John, what, what sort of drew you to take a look back into the three decades when the league was uh, uh, not even an American sporting afterthought for, uh, for the early part of that period? And, uh, and, the, and then how it sort of got through the Depression and World War II. What made you think that would be interesting? Well, the quick story is that, uh, as you said, it's my 10th book, and and uh, this is one that, unlike my other ones, it sort of fell into my lap. Uh, I have to be honest. I was working on another book, actually, about Cal Ripken's streak, and uh, my book agent in New York got a call from an editor at Basic Books that said, listen, we want to publish a book about the early days of the NFL. As this young editor was an NFL fan, and we liked that as storytelling, and do you have a writer? And uh, my agent said, well, yeah, he mentioned me. So uh, I got together with this editor, and we sort of talked about what the story could be. He just knew that's the time frame he wanted. It was up to me to sort of come up with the narrative. And uh, I just thought about it for a while. I'd always thought the early days of the NFL was a great era to write about. It's just so different from the way things are now and crazy times, interesting people. And so I did come up with sort of this thought that, it's just so different than it is now. How in the world did they get through that that period? I just don't think people realize that this was really almost a failing enterprise for for three decades. And it was like, how in the world did they do that? Get through that time when it was failing and then set themselves up to succeed in the long run. And so I settled on these five guys and really thought I would tell the story through through their collective biography. So I just set out to do that. 
Oh, well, one of the things that uh, I read somewhere was that your greatest source, or uh, I think you consider it your greatest source, and looking back on these guys since they all had passed away, was something that you found in the Hall of Fame archives. Uh, if you could tell our listeners what was it and did you read them all? <laughs> no, I didn't read them all. Uh, what it is is a document. Well, it's a, it's a loose-leaf binder uh, that sits in the Hall of Fame, uh, the research library that they have there, a great library with tons of stuff. And this document, uh, or loose-leaf binder, has the official minutes of every league meeting going back to the first one in 1920, the one in the Canton, Ohio showroom. There's a, there, you can go into the Hall of Fame, sit down, and, and just go over these minutes, just page after page. It's a massive, massive uh, loose-leaf binder, and it does not leave the hall. And so, uh, and, I, and it's very clear that they got much better as time went on and taking <laughs> official minutes. But uh, so uh, you can just sit in there and read them. Sit in there and read these me- minutes, and, and the voices come alive. It's just an amazing thing, really, to do that. You have to go to Canton to do it, but I went a couple times. I I, I couldn't get enough of it. It was really, really valuable to me. Ron, you ever seen those minutes? I uh, have not. I did hear that they existed, but when I asked to see them, they said, no, not you, pal. Get out of here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, John, I want to go back to something you said earlier, and that was about uh, the, the league being so financially strapped for those three decades, and now we get into the 1950s. I, I'm just sort of wondering, why didn't these five guys throw in the towel, and, and did any of them ever come close to doing it? Well, yes, they did. Uh, Tim Mara, in particular, started the Giants for five hundred dollars or twenty five hundred, depending on whose version of history you're be- you believe. And he wasn't even—he didn't even know anything about football. He was a boxing promoter and a horse racing uh, bookie, and he didn't like football. And the Giants, for the first four or five years, nobody came to the games in New York, and and so uh, yeah, I think he said his his grandson John Mara, who's running the Giants today, said there were many times when he thought about just throwing in the towel. And if his sons, Wellington and Jacket, if they hadn't really liked that their dad had was now running a football team, if his sons hadn't gotten into it, he would have thrown in the towel. And, and certainly uh, Burt Bell, I mean, he was born rich and blew all his money and, uh, at the racetrack and doing God knows what else. And, and uh, you know, he had to borrow money from his wife to, to start the Eagles. He didn't have much money. He was borrowing money in the early years that the Philadelphia Eagles, Art Rooney would send him checks uh, just to, to pay his players. And so, you know, I mean, the early years of the Philadelphia Eagles, they're, they're a really sad tale. I mean, no one is going to these games. And and so you have to believe Art Rooney, I know, is early on with the Steelers. They weren't even the Steelers. They were the Pirates. They, they definitely were on the edge of what they could handle financially. And so I have no doubt there was plenty of times when they thought about just throwing in the towel. Well, well speaking of Burt, uh, many owners wanted to shut down the league during World War II, but, but Burt Bell actually refused. Um, how did he convince them to stay, and would any commissioner today, in your opinion, have the power he had over the game then? Well, he wasn't a commissioner during the war. He was the commissioner. He got the job in 46. Uh, but, I mean, he was there in a very influential voice. That's why they made him commissioner uh, in the, you know, during the war. Uh, and, and to answer your question, no. I mean, the influence that he had 
was unbelievable. I mean, coming coming out of the war, uh, you know, Elmer Layden had been the commissioner, and uh, it was Joe Carr. It, before that, was really not even a commissioner. They just called him the president, and so they had never really had somebody that was just a strong forceful sort of, you know, the way that Kennesaw Mountain Landis was in baseball or, or the way the commissioner is today. So, and the reason they, they picked him was he had, he was one of them. I mean, these five guys were running the league. They had gone to a couple other guys. They didn't really trust anyone else. Elmer Layden was not really a success. And Burt, I mean, these other guys were running teams. Hallis had the Bears and Mara had the Giants and Burt career as an owner wasn't going so great so they said well you know you can you can do this you know he could do it so they put him in charge and and this gave him unbelievable authority and he just he just made all sorts of decisions about gambling and how to handle a union and television and uh, just under the radar really at this point just a, a huge influence in so many things having to do with the NFL you know, one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, the rule changes uh, in those days that changed pro football from kind of a World War One slow slog infantry battle uh, into more of a wide open passing game. And it, it struck me that uh, not that different from what they've done today, although they've ruined the game, but they, but they have certainly opened up the passing game even more. Uh, which of these five guys had the most to do with with that part of changing the rules to open the game? Um. I would really George Preston Marshall had a lot to do with it, uh, and Hallis, of course. I mean, my 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 uh, sort of reading of this situation. I you know Hallis was never the commissioner, and but uh, he effectively ran the league in many respects, and and a lot of these guys bowed to him on on matters of football, and so he he sort of instinctively knew the game needed to be better. And in comes George Preston Marshall in the early '30s when the the regular most of the games were six to nothing, and you know there's a lot of punting and uh it was not very entertaining and so marshall comes in he's a he's from the theater he's a failed actor and uh they show girls and all this and he he stands up at his first meeting and he says you know i don't know football like you gentlemen but i do know the entertainment business and this is a dud this game is a dud and so we got a lot we got to get going we got to make this better and so the, within a year the rules that had hamstrung the passing game that those were gone suddenly you could pass the football they they introduced hash marks this was all at one league meeting in 1933 they introduced hash marks uh, they introduced a championship game and they opened up the passing game that was it one league meeting in 1933. So uh, th- those rules alone sort of made pro football more interesting. Hey, John, what prevented these guys from tearing each other apart and the league apart? I mean, you see leagues like the USFL and WFL, that they've been torn apart by high-ego rivals. What prevented these guys from tearing each other and the NFL apart? That's a great question, Clark. It really is, and it's a central question because they did try to beat each other on Sundays. There were some unbelievable rivalries. I mean, if you go back and look at the late 30s, the, the Redskins and the Giants, I mean, Tim, they, they were trying to kill each other. There's this unbelievable games played in front of rabid fans, and, and, and Mara and Marshall did not like each other at all. And everybody sort of had an attitude about Hallis. They always thought Hallis was trying to cheat him. And so there was all this undercurrent of stuff, but it's just amazing. I mean, that's all I can say. Hallis uh, would stand up and say, listen, you know, you guys are mad at me. We're mad at each other. But we, we got to, and this is not, this is at a league meeting. This is not at a 
on a Sunday would say, you know, we, we have, we're partners here. We got to figure this stuff out. You know, the league comes first and we just have to understand that. And so you got to put that aside. And so you just haven't seen that. You just don't see that in, in other sports. And, and somehow uh, he got through to them. They, they all agreed. I mean, they became, they were bitter rivals. And it's too bad the name Team of Rivals was gone. It was a perfect name for this book because they really were rivals, but they were a team too. They, they got it. They just understood that if they don't all work together and make the league better, It'll be gone. It will be gone. They did understand that. So I have to give credit to Hallis more than anyone else to stand in there. And Art Rooney, too. Art Rooney was the peacemaker in this group. And he said, we have to figure this out. We, we, we just can't let these differences blow us apart. So, you know, some real, some real foresight there and, and level-headedness in the midst of all this craziness. John, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it and love the book. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. That was author John Eisenberg. Up next, it's quarterback Billy Kilmer. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, you may remember Bill Kilmer as a Super Bowl quarterback with the Washington Redskins. That was in 1972. But older listeners remember him for what he did with his legs in the original shotgun offense of the San Francisco 49ers in 1961. He set an NFL record that season with three consecutive 100-yard rushing games by a quarterback. A coach, Red Hickey, envisioned the shotgun as a running offense and installed it in the third game of that season, the 61 season, rotating his three quarterbacks, that'd be John Brody, Bob Waters, and Billy. But injuries to his quarterbacks forced him to scrap the shotgun after three games, all victories, with the offense reinventing itself a decade later in Dallas as a passing offense. But there's been a surge of running quarterbacks in today's NFL, and there's certainly been a surge in shotgun offenses. So who better than Bill Kilmer to address the topic? Bill, thanks for joining us. Oh, good good to talk to you guys, yeah. Hey, Bill, Red Hickey dabbled with the shotgun at the end of the 1960 season. Then he traded the quarterback who didn't fit the scheme, Y.A. Tittle and drafted one of the first-round pick, who did, yourself. What did the quarterbacks think of the shotgun when Hickey broached the idea of rotating the three of you? Uh, I know that uh, that first game when we went out on the field in Detroit, Brody looked at uh, he looked over to the sideline. We walked on the field, come and get to work out, and there was an ambulance sitting over there. And he said, "Do you think that's for us?" <laughs> he said, because he didn't want to have anything to do with running the ball. Believe me, and uh, Tittle neither. And so, uh, you know, that's that's what. Uh, you know, me, I did make any difference. You know, I'm an ex-single wing tailback, and I ran as much as I threw, so it didn't bother me. But Brody was looking at that ambulance. He, he was, didn't want to have anything to do with the running. <laughs> I don't blame him. Hey, uh, I, I have a two-part question for you. Um, first, can you explain the specific roles the three of you had in the offense? And, and second, how much fun was playing quarterback in the shotgun? Well, it, it, for me, it, it was like being in college again. You know, I mean, there, the the shotgun was just a little more spread out than the single wing was. But you know, and when I went to UCLA, they spread out 
the single wing from what it was, and we used it as a passing offense at times. But anyway, getting back to the shotgun, uh, you know, I, I and, and the three of us would, I, mainly I'd go in on first down, and that was a running down. And I did uh, about 90% of my uh, balls were running plays. I only threw three times off of it and completed two. Now, Bobby Waters would be the second guy to come in if it was second and, say, five, and he would just run kind of the situation. Uh, and I guess Red would call all the plays uh, and, and send in, uh, you know, a guard or something. And then uh, Brody would come in on third down uh, if it got there, uh, uh, you know, and he'd throw 100% of the time. I don't remember John ever running off of that offense. <laughs> so there was no ambulance waiting for him. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in that in that in that shotgun that Red device, you know, he had we had two halfbacks that were split apart, and we did a lot of trapping with the running backs, and you know, the ball would come to us in a direct snap, then we'd hand it off to the running back. So, you know, really. They didn't have to do a lot of running. You know, they, they we could run sweeps. We ran our regular offense off of the of that shotgun. We didn't have to change anything. So, you know, when if if it like we rotate the quarterbacks every play, you know, and what the situation. So sometimes John would be in there on first down. So they'd call a trap play or a sweep, you know. And then uh, I might come in there on third and long, but very rarely, you know. But, you know, I ran most of the time, even if it was third and long or third and five or whatever it was. Bill, you rushed for 103 yards against the Lions, 131 against the Rams, and 113 against the Vikings to set the record for three consecutive 100-yard games. In fact, that 49 nothing win over Detroit was the worst defeat in the Lions franchise history. Could you sense at that point that Hickey could possibly be reinventing NFL offense with a shotgun? Also, and I think in those two games I scored eight touchdowns. Those three games I think I scored eight touchdowns. There was seven or eight in that span. And, uh, 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 you know, uh, we had such success. We uh, That was the third game of the year. And uh, we started out one and one. We beat uh, the Redskins at the time, 49 nothing, And then we went to Green Bay. And... Uh, Got, uh, got beat pretty good up there, and that's when Red. We we went to Milwaukee, and those days we came to the uh, state in the East and worked out, and that's where he put in the shotgun. And we went to County Stadium and hid, kind of hid behind the fence to put the offense in because Hickey thought maybe Detroit was watching it, and he's trying to be secret about it. So anyway, you know, we we really fooled him. I, I remember we. Start one guy one way, and Joe Schmidt would run, and we he and I'd fake it and go the other way, and uh, you know run a lot of that kind of stuff, and we had them befuddled. They they really really didn't get onto it, and uh, yeah, we beat them forty nine nothing, and uh, you know that was a rout. Then we went and played the Rams and beat them like thirty five nothing, 
And, uh, you know, uh, you saw, you said, what, 130 some yards there, and then uh, yeah. played Minnesota up in Minnesota and uh, gained over 100 yards, and I scored four touchdowns in that game. And, uh, you know, that stood as a record for a long while, you know, uh, uh, for me for scoring that many touchdowns. And uh, the, the thing that happened, we went to Milwaukee right after the Minnesota game, and we were working out there, and we had to play the Chicago Bears the next week, and Sports Illustrated came out and did a photo layout, and the offense of the 60s, you know, and interviewed me and John and Bobby, and, uh, you know, and everything. We went to Chicago and got beat 31-0, and that was the end of the <laughs> the offense of the 60s and we went you know we went on we ran it the next week against Pittsburgh and they beat us I mean it was close and but they beat us and uh, we went and played uh, Detroit at home and uh, we we kept it in there but we tied them in, in that game and uh, so the next week the Bears came in and that was the end of the shotgun forever because I never ran it again <laughs> well, Bill, I want to go back to that Bears game, that 31 nothing game. Um, what did the Bears do that day to you guys that the Lions, Rams, and Vikings didn't? I mean, do you blame the Bears or do you blame Sports Illustrated? Well, you know, they 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 what they did, Bill George was the middle linebacker then. And, you know, Bill George, they forget about how great a middle linebacker, you know, they always talk about Butkus and all the other guys. But Bill George was their middle linebacker, and all they did was they put Bill right in the gap between the center and the guard on either side. It depends on what our strong formation was. And he'd sit in the gap and just rush the gap. And he he, he just, uh, you know, knocked it out all our running plays. We didn't run the ball very well that day and really didn't pass it 31 nothing. The Bears pretty well stopped us. And, you know, it was ironic. Uh, uh, Clark Shaughnessy was their defensive coordinator. Uh, coordinator or yeah at the time but you know who was there that really put that defense in was george allen <laughs> yeah he was assistant coach for the bears then and that, that was kind of ironic bill you wanted to play with six 16 seasons with three teams the niners saints and redskins when did you figure out that your future your future as a quarterback is going to be throwing the ball not running it uh, you know, I worked out as the uh, like the third team quarterback. Uh, you know, the second year after the my rookie year, I came back to and I always worked out as the third team quarterback. And but Red made me a running back that year because we were real thin at running backs to start the exhibition season. And then I ended up being the starting running back for the Niners in 1962. <laughs> and if there's one thing that got me back playing quarterback was that bad car accident I had that almost ended my career right then. I snapped that leg off, and they said I'd never walk again. But ended up, but it, I, I said if I'm going to make it in the league, I better. You know, try to help. You know, play quarterback, and uh, you know, it was ironic too. And I, I kept. Uh, I was the third team quarterback on this on the Forty ers there for two years, sixty five and six, four, five, and six. And uh, in sixty five, Way Tittle had retired and came back, and he was uh, working, uh, putting in our passing game for the Niners that whole season. And uh, 
he would work with me after practice and help me with my drops because I had never dropped backward and I was, you know, uh, didn't have the fundamentals right. And YA really helped me with fundamentals of the drop back and everything. And then, uh, you know, luckily I stayed with the Niners in those days only because we had a kicker who did all the place kicking and the punting, Tommy Davis. And they, you know, it was 39, 40-man rosters, and they kept three quarterbacks. No, normally, they don't keep three quarterbacks. And then I got my big break, you know, going to the Saints is in the expansion draft and uh, got a chance to play there, and everything else was history. I, I have to laugh when you said it was ironic about George Allen. He must have seen something he liked, Bill, because, of course, you and George Allen, in 72, you go to the Super Bowl with the Redskins. Yeah, you know, when I was with the Saints, we played the Rams twice every year, and uh, we got got beat. I, I would, I could, I moved the ball on them and did, but we weren't good as good as they would. And you know, uh, every time we play them, we'd get beat. And uh, I remember Tommy Mason was on their squad after a game, and Tommy was a good friend of mine. I was coming out of the tunnel of the Coliseum about. Six seventy, I guess it was, and uh, he was telling me that George Allen really likes you. He's talk, he talks about you all the time. And I said, I don't know why, because I never beat him. So, you know, that was the only hit I had. And, uh, you know, he traded for me when he got the Redskin job the next year. Billy, there have been some mobile quarterbacks over the years, most notably Randall Cunningham, Michael Vick, and Colin Kaepernick. Does it surprise you that 57 years later, you remain the only quarterback ever to rush for 100 yards in three consecutive games? Well, not really, because they're quarterbacks, and most of their runs weren't designed. My runs were all designed. They came off of you know, uh, uh, me being able to run past two. And the, you know, we ran a run-pass option, uh, not a lot. But that was how I scored it through for a couple times, you know, and I completed. But I ran off of it, too. And uh, so it, it doesn't surprise me that they didn't get, get the yardage because that was, that's not really part of their offense. And they had to scramble around and, you know, and also... They, these guys that play quarterback today don't have the fundamentals of being a running back, of being a single-wing tailback. I knew how to take a blow. When a tackler came in, I knew how to dip my shoulder, not take the blow in my knees or you know where I could get hurt that much. And I was ironic that 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 I've never had knee surgery the whole career. I've been lucky there. Wow. Well, Bill, unfortunately, we're not so lucky. Like you, we've got to run. So we've got to go. We're out of time. Thanks so much. Really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for asking me, and I uh, hope I cleared things up. Yes, you did. Thanks so much, Bill. That was former quarterback Bill Kilmer. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost out of time, so if Ed Hockley's still around, Shay, would you have him blow that whistle? That's the two-minute warning. That's right, it's the two-minute drill with Dr. Data asking this week's questions. So, Gooseman, hit it. Giants coach Pat Shermer believes Eli Manning has multi-years left as a starting quarterback in the NFL. Do you share his belief? 
No, sir. I think he has multi years left with brother Peyton and Brad Paisley as part of the Jingle Sessions. <laughs> I would say not on any team that's going anywhere but down, unless he Tom Coffin brings him to Jacksonville to a team that's already down. Where is Joe Flacco playing his football in 2019? That'd be Madden 2019. <laughs> that's a damn good question, Gooseman, but uh, not as a Baltimore backup at an $18 million base salary and $26.5 million cap value. Rex Ryan says Rob Kronkowski runs now like he has a piano on his back. Is that why Bill Belichick tried trading him to the Lions last offseason? Yes, sirree. He said the piano wouldn't play. <laughs> no, it wasn't a piano problem. It's four forearm surgeries, three back surgeries, knee surgery, and ankle surgery. Piano was an afterthought. Ouch. Tom Brady said he wants to play until he's 45. What advice would you give him? Become a kicker. I would give him the great advice that uh, Mick Jagger once gave me. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, just might find you get what you need. And he's already got it. <laughs> wow. You know, Are the Eagles a better team with Carson Wentz or Nick Foles at quarterback? This time of year, Goose? Of course. It's Nick Foles. I believe in St. Nick. Well, I would say so since uh, Wentz has a fractured back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Baker Mayfield. I'm a better quarterback right now. <laughs> Baker Mayfield. David Baker or Dusty Baker? Ginger Baker. Ooh, nice. Ooh, I was going to go that direction, but I'm not. Dusty is my pal from many years ago, so I'll go with Dusty, who once said, pressure, that's when you got a mortgage to pay and no money in your pocket. <laughs> so what's wrong with the Rams? Kurt Warner retired nine years ago. I would say nothing that a little rest won't cure. Delvin Cook carried a season nine 19 times to the Vikings last weekend, his first 100-yard game, first touchdowns of the season. Where has he been all year? In John DeFilippo's woodshed. Exactly right. Ask DeFilippo. He treated running backs uh, as if it was a criminal offense to run the ball. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, and that is a criminal offense. But stay where you are. We have author Mark Leibovich coming up in the second half of this program, as well as our NFL Word of the Year and suggestions for the Oakland Raiders next home. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. It's always tough to open the segment each week with the news of the passing of another individual, but it seems as if we're doing that more and more these days. This week is no exception. That's because we lost one of the best offensive linemen in Atlanta Falcons history last week and someone who goose Push for the Pro Football Hall of Fame on our website, wtalkofamenetwork.com, and that's Bill Freilich. He succumbed to cancer last week at the age of 56. And, and Goose, I, I know you're a believer in Bill Freilich and, and Mike Ken and, and, and that Falcons offensive line. So why isn't one of them in the hall? I mean, Freilich was never even a semifinalist. Well, two reasons. One, offensive linemen don't have stats, and those offensive linemen in particular don't have any rings. Stats and rings have long been the ticket. Freelick was an all-decade choice and, and never even made the finals, like you said. If you were selected as one of the best players of your era, you deserve to have your career discussed and debated as to where it fits among the greatest players of all time. George Coons, Mike Ken, Jeff Vineau, Freilich, yeah. I mean, yeah. they all blocked for That's the good. Falcons, all deserve discussion. None have gotten it. Well, well, Ken was up for the Hall this year, as you guys know, but, but he didn't make the cut to 25. 
and, and that's in his last year of eligibility as a modern-era candidate. Now he moves to the senior pool. Goose, do you believe any of these guys makes it? Any of the Falcons make it? Yeah, everyone in the senior pool is a long shot, regardless of your team. You know, we have, we have way too many qualified and worthy candidates and way too few slots. You know, I would hope one of them comes out at some point in the future, but they're all long shots. Hey, hey Ronnie, I'm sure you crossed paths with Fred Lake while covering the Patriots. I, I know I did sure. when I was a beat reporter. What, what made him special? Uh, well, as a player, I mean, he was so physically strong, uh, plus uh, being very athletic, and it was almost freakish combination of the two things. But for me, it was his, his intellect. You know, we all know offensive linemen are the go-to guys uh, to talk to if you really want to know what happened in a game or in a play or in most situations. And uh, uh, my experience with Bill Fraley, because he was an all-pro in that area, too, and I always enjoyed uh, visiting with him and, and always learned something about football and usually something about something else, too. Uh- Quick, quick one for you, Ronnie. We've got a thir- about 30 seconds. Sometimes a death gets people to notice someone. Ken Stabler, for instance, been overlooked too long. Any chance that might happen with Bill Frelick? Uh Sadly, I would say, as Goose said earlier, wrong position. They should have gotten to do a long time ago, but he didn't uh, because he played an unheralded position with no stats on a team with few wins. And that's a, just a, a, a combination that doesn't work and sends you into the great abyss. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, for Bill Frelick, uh, that's where things will end for him, sadly. Okay. Anyway, it is sad. Bill Freak, gone way too soon at 56. And speaking of the great abyss, that's where we're going. We're going to commercial. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Before we go farther, we'd like to congratulate Hall of Fame President and CEO David Baker on a five-year extension. Hall announced that this week along with another title for David that's Chairman of Johnson Controls Hall of Fame Village. So, Ron, quick question. What does David Baker do with all that money he's going to make, and when do we get a five-year extension? Well, uh, uh, I can trust you. We don't get an extension, but Big <laughs> Country gets himself a new purple suit, probably with velour pants and matching pocket square. <laughs> big Country cashing checks. <laughs> Got to be a big suit, too. Hey, Goose, uh, just what in the heck is the Hall of Fame Village, and how soon before we can move there? Please tell us. All I know, there's going to be a four-star hotel and a shoeless steakhouse, so our annual trip to Canton will be a little more highbrow than they've been in the past. Is there an unlimited budget, too, Gooseman? <laughs> Talk fame budget. Yeah, that means no. Um, anyway, David Baker, here's looking at you, though. You're hard to miss, hard to miss. If you know what I mean, yeah. Oof. Okay, another piece of news. I seem to be the purveyor of news this week. Um, it's because it's Christmas. And this one, this one not so good, guys. It also has to do with the Hall of Fame, yeah. but it's not about an extension. It's more like an execution. I'm talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of what Fame. What happened? What yeah, happened? Yeah, announced its uh, inductees last yeah. week, and there mm-hmm. were seven of them. There were. None of whom was named Todd Rundgren, and I'm steamed. Now, forget that he was third in the fan vote. Forget that he has more talent than virtually the entire group of inductees combined. Uh, forget, well, Ron, forget that he should make it alone as a producer. And forget that when Hall and Oates were inducted, Daryl Hall said, you know what, why are we going in ahead of Todd Rundgren? Well, it's a good question. Forget all that, all right? This is all you need to know about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It put in Janet Jackson. Yeah, Janet Jackson, whose biggest contribution was a wardrobe malfunction at halftime at Super Bowl 38. And it put her in when it didn't choose Todd Rundgren. And guys, I'm sorry, but Janet Jackson is about close to Hall of Fame rock and roll as Puccini. 
You know how Aretha sang about uh, R-E-S-P-E-C-T? Yeah, Goose knows he's from Detroit. Well, I've got another one for the hall. It's called D-I-S-G-R-A-C-E, because that goose is what this is. Hey, the hall should be applauded for finally putting the zombies in. Time of the season, tell her no, she's not there. Let's show a little love for Rod Argent here. But your focus is tied. Mine was the zombies. I think Ron's been holding up for the Archie. <laughs> yeah, now listen, I'm, I'm good with the zombies, right? I, I'm good with, I love Roxy Music, you know? Yeah, put them in. Brian Ferry, great. Zombies, yeah, Rod Argent. But Ar- album's by Argent. But are you kidding me? I mean, Def Leppard and, <laughs> and Janet Jackson? What, what in the world is going on here? I don't get it. You know, wait, wait, wait a second. I mean, Ron, now maybe some of our NFL listeners like you haven't heard of Todd, hard to believe, I know, but you haven't heard of Mrs. Maisel either, but uh, guaranteed those NFL listeners do know this because it's played after every Green Bay Packers touchdown, and Shay hit it. What do you think of that, Ronnie? Well, you know, that may very well be true. But let me remind you of one thing. If you're asking me, pick between a night with Janet Jackson or a night with Todd Who, you know which way we're going? It ain't with who, brother. <laughs> Janet Jackson <laughs> J- Janet Jackson has has the uh, has the essentials. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I don't. I'm not asking you anything. I'm telling you right now. Big, big mistake. Okay, in the first hour, whew, gotta cool me off. Give me some ice. Jeez. I asked you Who's about Puccini, your talk by of the fame. way. <laughs> I thought it was an Italian dish. Like Spumoni. He's, he's the guy who's serving pizza to us at the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. um, listen, I asked you in the first hour about your Talk of Fame Person of the Year. So, well, naturally, I'm going to ask you about our Talk of Fame Network Song of the Year. And, Ron, we're in the Christmas spirit here. We are. So, yes, you can make it autumn wind if you like, even though that wind, of course, is going to blow your team all the way to the site of the 2020 draft. Uh, gentlemen, let me remind you of one thing. The autumn wind is a raider, pillaging just for fun. <laughs> He'll knock you round and upside down and laugh when he's conquered and won. What do you want, White Christmas? <laughs> was that John Facenda? <laughs> what was that? Jeez, that's music, brother. <laughs> okay, Goose Man, you got a Talk of Fame Network song of the year? Yeah, I think I speak for our listening audience when I say there is but one choice. Hail yeah. to the Redskins. <laughs> Where is it? Where's the audio? <laughs> yeah, where's the Michigan State marching band playing where's Hail the to Michigan the Redskins? State? Come they're, on. They're with, they're with the Redskins band. They're off the, <laughs> off the network here. Where are they? I don't hear them. Where's that Michigan State marching band? Oh, my God. <laughs> they're going to the Red, Red Ox Bowl or whatever the bowl is. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're playing the Autumn Wind. Yeah, they're playing. What are they playing? I heard the other day, like 42 or 43 bowls now. Unbelievable. Many bowls. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, Hey, Goose, uh, you you know what? Uh, I want to ask you one thing, though. Um, Speaking of that 2020 draft that's blowing Ron's favorite team to Las Vegas, I thought the NFL was talking about moving the 2020 draft to Canton. It's 100th celebration NFL. Whatever happened to that? I mean, what gives? 
Well, as long as there's a musical twist to this segment, let me quote Pink Floyd. Money, it's a gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. A new car, caviar, four-star dream. I think I'll buy me a football team. That, of course, is from the song Money, which is why the NFL is taking the draft and also placing a football team in Las Vegas. <laughs> that sounds like Dark Side of the Moon, which I think the NFL is right now making that decision, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> Pink Floyd. Wow. Let me quote. Uh, let me let me quote from another Michigan guy, Gooseman. Floyd Mayweather. Give me the cash, brother. Give me the cash. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a signal that we're going to hear from another candidate for our person of the year. And no, it's not Doctor Cash. It's not Mrs. Mazel. Do they do know her in Germany, don't they, Ron? Oh, they do, Mrs. Maisel. They oh, call they her Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, there Mrs. you Maisel. go. Well, anyway, it's not them. It, it's our own Dr. Data, a.k.a. Rick Goslin, with something you might want to know about the monsters of the Midway. Gooseman? The Chicago Bears do not lead the NFL in defense. There are defenses that have allowed fewer rushing yards, fewer passing yards, and fewer points. The Bears do not lead the NFL in sacks. There have been better pass rushes this season. But there is one aspect of defense that separates the Bears from all others, opportunism. Not only do they lead the lead in takeaways by a wide margin, they have returned six of those takeaways for touchdowns. Safety Eddie Jackson has three of them on two interceptions and a fumble return. The Bears have a league-leading 36 takeaways. Only one other NFL team is in the 30s. That's Cleveland with 30. The Bears lead the league in interceptions with 26. Only one other team is in the 20s, and that's Miami with 20. But it's those defensive touchdowns that set the Bears apart. Those six touchdowns lead the league. Houston and Minnesota are next with four. Why are those defensive touchdowns important? Because when you score them, you win. There have been 55 defensive touchdowns scored in the NFL this season, and teams returning them have posted a 47-8 and record in those games. If you return an interception for a touchdown this season, your team is 33-5. and If you return a fumble for a touchdown, your team is 14-3 and this season. Now, Jacksonville led the NFL with seven return touchdowns in 2017 and reached the AFC title game. The Eagles collected four defensive touchdowns on the way to their first Lombardi trophy. There were 76 return touchdowns total in the league a year ago, and teams returning them posted a 57-19 and record. You score on defense, you win. Four different Chicago defenders have reached the end zone this season. Jackson those three times, Cleo Mack, Prince of Makamura, and Leonard Floyd. The opportunism is what separates the Bears from all other defenses this season. So, Gooseman, uh, who is this Bears defense in terms of ultimate endings? Are they the Jaguars, the Eagles, the Colts defense, uh, who the late season blossoming gave Peyton Manning his first Super Bowl ring? Or do they have a fatal flaw? Let me say this. Defense can keep a team in a game, but you need an offense to win that game. The Bears have a defense capable of winning a championship. The question remains they have an offense capable as well. They rank 14th in rushing and 22nd in passing. Mitch Trubisky, Jordan Howard, and Allen Robinson in 2018 don't inspire the same confidence as Jim McMahon, Walter Payton, and Willie Galt in 1985. Hey, Goose, the Bears or Todd Rundgren? Bears. The Bears. <laughs> no, the Bears. Okay. What about Puccini? <laughs> yeah, I could use those guys. Tony Puccini. <laughs> I could use the Bears to defend myself each week against you guys. Okay, we got to run. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, a couple of odd bits of information to pass on, maybe a couple of more odd bits of information to pass on, because that's what we specialize in here. Odd, or in my case... Todd. Well, the first was a tweet several weeks ago that concerns Gil Brandt. This is a keeper, boy. This is good. Uh, one of two contributor nominees for the class of 2019. Of course, Denver owner Pat Bolin is the other. Anyway, the tweet came from a guy named Andres, and it said, quote, the late, great Gil Brandt <laughs> with hashtag R.I.P. Hashtag gone too soon. <laughs> Provoking a response from the live Gilbrandt that went something like this. Wait, what? <laughs> Good question, Goose. What the, is that all about? Trust me, when Gilbrandt passes, he'll be the first to report it. <laughs> right. Hey, Goose, wait a second. Remember when you were in a press box at a hockey game in Providence about 10 years ago? You told me a great story. And, and you were asked a similar question about somebody on this show? Yes, sir. I was at a college hockey game, and I asked a student reporter if he knew of a Ron Borges. The kid responded, I think he's dead. <laughs> He must have been working for my ex-wife, who was hoping the same. Uh, Well, as my old pen pal Mark Twain used to tell me, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. And yes, they were. (laughs) Well, nice to know you're still with us, Ron. We'd have trouble filling that that gorgeous or bogus slot if you were. (laughs) Anyway, uh, another piece of odd or Todd information. Um, There was an angry fan of Minnesota who after the Vikings lost to Seattle two Mondays ago, and you, maybe you guys saw this, he, he, put, <laughs> he put the Vikings' new stadium up for sale on Craigslist. <laughs> True story. Anyway, it read, quote, for sale, lightly used $1 billion stadium. Occupant has been a team that only has success in breaking the hearts of the fans. Long history of collecting talent with no ideas on how to use them, unquote. Uh, Ron? Whatever happened to the Minneapolis miracle? I mean, that was only 11 months ago. How soon they forget? Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, what they haven't forgotten is that the very next week they got thumped by the Eagles 38-7. to uh, So angry fans, and I'm not sure there are any of the kind these days, uh, this guy has a point. They just started the heartache a little earlier this year, and he's slightly peeved, kind of like you and Todd Rundgren. Peeved. No, no, not slightly. I'm angry. So, so Goose. Who should take that offer? I mean, who should take that offer and buy the building? I mean, David Baker? I mean, he just got a five-year extension. Touchdown maker? Uh, Ron? Uh, Mrs. Maisel? Who? Who should take that? Mrs. Maisel. Hey, you could have bought the Silver Dome of figures back for 500000 And there was some history in that building having hosted a Super Bowl that began, Clark, you know, the 49er dynasty in 1931. That's right. I'm not sure even David Baker wants to go to the hip. For a million dollar purchase. <laughs> hey guys, but I, I gotta I gotta tell you one thing, Goose. Since you missed it, you know who made a movie at the Silverdome? No, you. That would be me. Me and my pal Hugh Jackman. We shot a movie what? right there at the Silverdome. Yeah, but, 
Yeah. Thing that boxed the robot. Real steel. So, exactly right. So, wait a minute. Can I find you an intermovie data? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that ain't wow. the only one, brother. It says under that IMDb, Ron Borges, he died. <laughs> That's right. I spent an entire day chasing him into and out of the Silver Dome, supposedly as a reporter, for like two seconds on air. After about the That's 100th right. take, he turned to me and he went, you're pretty good at this. <laughs> we both started laughing. I said, yeah, I run down the hallway and you run ahead of me. It's great. That's why we take 99 <laughs> takes of this. <laughs> wow. I don't know how I missed that, Ron, but I did. I'm sorry I didn't see it. Yeah, uh, okay. Terrible. One now, of the great now, movies. Now, Are you kidding me? Raging well, Bull. Real Steel. Now to return, guys, to the planet Earth. <laughs> the planet Earth. All right? <laughs> Merriam-Webster Dictionary this week announced its word of the year, and that word is justice. Because it said it saw a 74% spike in lookups of the word justice in the past year. Okay, fine. Wow. So what's the NFL word of the year, Gone? Ron, what is it? Something oh, that me? spiked in lookups the past year? Yeah, what's the NFL word of the year? Uh, oh. Something that, that spiked in lookups. Well, for me, that's easy. It's, it's, it's actually two words. No justice. As a no justice for Colin Kaepernick, and more importantly, the poor oh, fans geez. forced to watch guys like Josh geez. Johnson, Nathan Peter Murray, Peter Smith, Peter Johnson, whatever Peter his name man. is, Mark Sanchez, and a lot more of other guys impersonating NFL quarterbacks while you have to pay top-end prices to watch these guys. And this kid sits in limbo eating gumbo. No justice. Yeah, and, and cashing checks is a political act. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Juice. We Juice. all like checks. We cash checks. My word maybe is. He, maybe he should buy the Maybe he should buy the stadium. He should buy it, right. He should. He Goose should. man, go. My word is defenseless, as in defenseless receiver. That one word has changed the dynamic of defensive backfield play. The message hits are gone. In today's game, if you don't let the receiver catch the ball and take a step with it, he's considered defenseless, and you're going to pick up a 15-yard penalty flag. And if he decides to duck his head, you better get your helmet out of the way, or that's going to be another 15 yards. (laughs) Wow. He's getting worked up. I like it. (laughs) How about... Ron, I, I will get you worked up. How about Oakland Raiders? Ooh, the autumn winds, brother. Yeah, how about that? Because it seems they're in the middle of everything these days. They they're are. Last in the league, first in the draft, turning two bottom feeders into division champs while turning off their fans. And now they're in the middle of a very intriguing court battle, which, Ron, as you know, is nothing new. <laughs> Wouldn't no, be sir. the Raiders if there wasn't litigation. You know what? If I had to summarize what's going on there right now, and I mean in Oakland, I'd characterize it in these three words. Stink, stank, stunk. So first things first. Ron, the city of Oakland is suing the Raiders. And the Raiders don't have a lease for 2019. So where do they play next season? Oh, I mean, that is so obvious if one opens one's eyes. Mexico City. Bad stadium, bad turf, bad hombres. Sounds perfect. Perfect to me. Imagine Raider fans at the border. They won't need a wall. They'll need Sherman tanks and tear gas on the way back into the U.S., fitting into this entire L.A., San Diego, Oakland, Vegas fiasco. Bad hombres. Hey, Goose, I'm glad he mentioned opening eyes because it reminds me. Open my eyes. Big hit song by the Naz, Todd Rundgren. Just another reason to put him in the Hall of Fame. All right. Goose, what do you got? Where are they playing next year? If this was Al, if he was still with us, he tried to move back to L.A. and then sue both the Rams and Chargers, claiming the Raiders hold the city's domain, and the Rams and Chargers are merely squatters. But Mark owns the Raiders, so he'll be less confrontational. Maybe he'll ask the league to schedule the Raiders for a game in London, a game in Mexico, 
and 14 road dates. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know something, guys? To his dying day, he made the, the guys who worked there, the scouts and stuff, they had to fill out their expense form on L.A. Raiders expense forms. Is that right? Yeah, because yeah, he he continued. They had stationary and everything. He continued to say, we own the L.A. territory. They yep. can't go. Yep. <laughs> yep, that's right. Well, um, you guys both mentioned San Diego. I, I, I don't think it's L.A. I think San Diego makes too much sense not to happen. I mean, the stadium's is empty. There are more Raiders fans there than there are Chargers fans in L.A. It wouldn't take much. The 49ers don't want them in Santa Clara. And let's face it, guys. It gives us, Ron, all a reason to do shows from the Hotel Dell in December. What's not to like about that? Well, let me tell you what there's not a lot to like about that. Raider fans walking over to the Over the Line Tournament. There are not <laughs> enough cops in San Diego County to prevent what's going to happen next. Debacle at the that's Over the in, Line line. <laughs> that's in July. That's not in December. <laughs> okay, now this. Um, they are, as you know, um, talking about the Raiders, going to play the last home game of the season on Christmas Eve against Denver. And... and <laughs> Ron, you, you covered that team. So that's oh, all yeah. the makings of the Grinch Part 2. I mean, the city's suing them, and owner Mark Davis said the only reason he'd return in 2019 would be for the fans, period. So this could be their last game there ever. And if it is, the black hole yeah, might actually become it might actually become just that, a black hole with Raider Nation taking home every piece of that stadium that's either not zircon-crusted or bolted down. So, Ron, what do you do? What do you do? If I'm the mayor of Oakland... I send out a declaration. Lock up the women and children. That yeah. would be a very good start. Goose, how about you? Well, I was I was there for the last game at the Met in Minneapolis, and they told us to get your work done and get out of there as soon as possible. So I'm sitting there in the press box watching fans take apart the stands, the scoreboard, <laughs> everything that wasn't moored to the ground. But maybe the baseball A's will assign a sign assigned armed guards to protect that venerable old coach. They, they didn't take apart the press box, did they, Goose? <laughs> oh, I, they waited until I got out, then my seat was gone. <laughs> there you go. Hey, well, listen, um, now f- former Raiders CEO and friend of the show, Amy Trask, uh, has suggested a few things to me that uh, make some sense. And, and that means it probably won't happen, but they do make sense. She suggested uh, turning that last game into a celebration rather than a wake uh, by inviting one, local artists associated with Oakland, like MC Hammer, Too Short. I don't know who Too Short. Who's Too Short? And Adam Duritz of Counting Crows. Uh, she wants them in the parking lot staging concerts. Okay, that's good. Two, she also suggested having Raiders Legends in the parking lot signing autographs. I guess that means someone like you, Ron. Um, and then also having free concessions in the stadium. Good luck with that. And then three, afterwards she said she'd invite the fans on the field to mix with players and coaches. She said, quote, this needs to be a thank you and a salute and an appreciation to the magnificent Magnificent Raider Nation. This should be a festival for the fans, unquote. Goose, what do you think? Festival for the fans? you like it or not? I think I'd like to see Ted Hendricks right into the stadium parking lot on a horse. How about you, Ron? Yeah, there you go. I've been, I've started doing it in practice. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. You you guys have any suggestions you'd like to pass on to Mark Davis? I mean, we've heard from Amy Trask. You want to pass on something, Ron, for this last game? Well, uh, yeah, I, I would pass on two things. Keep cashing dem checks. Your daddy would be proud. And please find a new hairstylist. Please. I'm, but you cannot go to Las Vegas with a head like that. He looks like Woody Woodpecker. I got one thing to pass on. Just win, baby. If you're going to leave, <laughs> yeah. leave on a high note. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, Ron, just a hunch. But yeah. Raider Nation, I'm guessing Raider Nation doesn't believe the word of the year should be justice. No. No. I would say no justice. No freedom. No football. Okay. Well, like the Raiders, we two are moving on this tour break, and we are coming back with Mark Leibovich, author of the best-selling Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Really? 
Dangerous Times? I'd like to know why. Stay tuned to find out. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, our next guest grew up loving pro football in general, and the New England Patriots in particular. But unlike the three of us, he was smart. In fact, he was so smart, he avoided <laughs> sports writing. Instead, Mark Leibovich went on to become a reporter at the Boston Phoenix, the San Jose Mercury News, and he and I crossed paths at the Merc for, I think, three or four years anyway. Uh, he was there mm-hmm. in the Washington Post before becoming a national political reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, and now now the chief national correspondent for the Times Magazine. But fandom dies hard, and don't we know it. And in 2014, it led him to write a profile on Tom Brady that kindled an interest in how the NFL was faring with his problems. He spent much of the next four years reporting and writing what has become the best-selling big game, the NFL in dangerous times. And if you don't have it, do yourself a favor and put it on your Christmas list. I read it, and it's terrific. And, Mark, pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Well, Mark, first things first. Uh, you also wrote a best-selling book called uh, This Town, which was called by someone uh, that I read a book about the incestuous ecology of insider Washington. So I'm wondering, which is more incestuous, which is more dysfunctional, D.C. or 35 Park Avenue? It's amazing. It's all the same book, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, the, the whole idea for like you know writing about football is that I could escape politics and Washington and the money and the egos and the BS and, and all that. And it was really, I mean, it was the same party basically. I mean, you realize that a lot of the same kind of usual suspects uh, just kind of recur, um, you know, in both worlds. And and you sort of realize after, I mean, not that many sort of trips around the league and you know to the various set pieces like Super Bowls and drafts and you know combines and Hall of Fame inductions and stuff like that, that it's just, wow, we're, we're just doing the same circuit every single uh, year. And, you know, I did it for four years, and a lot of other people have been you know, doing it for a long time. But you do realize it's a very small and insular world, and it's sort of a village. And um, it was just fascinating, though, to be able to kind of get inside and and be a foreign correspondent there for, for a while, and then um, hop back into my, my normal life, or in so much as normal as possible in Washington, D.C. circa right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speaking about abnormal, <laughs> Wow. Uh, (laughs) Crazy. But you uh, you say in Big Game that under Roger Goodell's watch, uh, the NFL has gone from being one of the most unifying institutions in America to the country's most polarizing sports brand. Why is that? And if so, how does does the game retain its hold on American sports fans? Well, I mean, that's that's a great question. I mean, first of all, I mean, I asked um, the commissioner that explicitly, and, and he's very quick to punt. I mean, he's really quick to say, well, I don't think it has anything to do with me. I don't think it has anything to do with the league. I just think that society in general is just much more divided and, and people just are much quicker to see everything in terms of like a, a political debate or a culture war or what have you. And I think he's he's right largely. I mean, I think, you know, he's a little too quick to maybe shed responsibility. But I, I also think that um, that you're right. I mean, this is a very, uh, I mean, you know, the, the thing about football is it's just such, I, I mean, this is one of the reasons I assume that you guys are still doing what you're doing and why I'm still watching. It's just a great game. It's, it's a game that survives in spite of a lot of people that run and own the thing. And, um, you know, it just seems really well suited to the psyche of America right now. But the question is, how long is that going to last? And, and how well, you know, equipped are the people who are in charge to, to sort of see it through what's going to be a very, very tumultuous few decades and already has been. 
Yeah, I've got two words for you, Mark. Fantasy football. Keep <laughs> yeah, or gambling, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, that's the one word, gambling, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. And listen, I, I, I have to confess this before Ron does, but, but next mm. to you, I'm Tom Brady's biggest bag carrier. So oh, it's unbelievable. I've got a course here for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, All right, go for it. So go here we it. go. How did his yeah. email to you in 2014 set this whole book idea in motion? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I had this kind of side project where, you know, again, I, I have this day job as a political reporter, and like a lot of people, I just follow football way too closely. And I grew up in New England. I, I like the Pats. I, you know, I'm one of the good ones. I swear. I, I'm not. You know, I try to be gracious and 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 you know, uh, public spirited and all that stuff. But you know, I, I sort of I was talking to you know maybe once or twice a year to Don Yee, who is Brady's agent, and uh, Don said that Tom sometimes likes to to sort of operate outside of the zone of, of football. He likes to sort of talk to people who who do different things and um Eventually, uh, I got this email from Tom saying, "Hey, Tom Brady here," and that was the beginning of a weird—I wouldn't say friendship, but but you know—we communicated for a couple of years, and he um, he became you know, in a, besides everything else, just kind of a weirdly normal guy who answers his emails and you know cares about his family and is kind of you know cares a great deal about football, obviously. But uh, no, that's how it all started. And you realize—I mean, I've interviewed you know presidents and CEOs and so forth, but there's something about fandom that that right. I've don't think I've ever been more nervous or sort of starstruck in my whole life than like actually interviewing a guy who you know is basically playing a boy's game. Yeah, and you, and you made that pretty clear, I think, in the book too. <laughs> Embarrassingly, right? People, no, yeah, not many people would admit to that, but but uh, you yeah. did, and I would as well. But speaking of Brady, um, he's taken yeah. your team to eight Super Bowls and won five of them. So let me ask you yep. this: if, if Peyton Manning were sleeping in special PJs and taking mm-hmm. medicine to cure concussions from oh, this century's uh, Rasputin yeah. and eating food? His father even says it's not food. Would you think yeah. Peyton Manning was slightly ajar if he's not permanently concussed? I mean, oh yeah, no, I yeah, exactly. No, I think Tom's probably slightly ajar. Like I wouldn't eat that crap. I mean, I mean, but but look, I whatever the hell, whatever it is, it's been working. And until you know, and someone until someone comes along and says it's illegal, um, yeah, I'm willing to sort of say you know keep doing what you're doing. I mean, maybe he's just yeah. not doing enough of it this year. Maybe that's why they're nine and five. Um, so yeah, he's, he's got he's got maybe the pajamas aren't working or. Something. Something. Maybe he needs to replace them. <laughs> but um, no, I, look, I'm totally look. I like sports. Like again, it's a, I'm a sports fan. I'm in the tank, so um, you know I do suspend some critical distance after a while. <laughs> yeah, I guess, it's funny, Mark. You know, because that's the one, one thing that's always struck me about Tom. And obviously, I've been around him this whole time here. Yeah. yeah. If anybody else on another team was doing the stuff he's doing and saying the things he's doing and posing with a goat, <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> New England fans would go crazy. Say, well, this guy, oh, he's, he's, you know, it's, it's there's funny. no. No doubt, there is no doubt. No, no, no. I, but look, I'm a, I'm a New England fan. I, I know how we have very, very critical and objective lenses through which we we we, we study these yeah. things. But no, it's pretty crazy. Um, but look, you know, the question is how much longer, right? I mean, exactly. I think that's a question a lot of people are asking, right? Right. Yeah. No, right. That's right. Hey, hey, Ron, and not yep. anybody else has been to eight Super Bowls and won five of them. Okay. That's true. Mm. I've been to like. 41 of them didn't win any of them. But, uh, you didn't win any of them, huh? No, I sat there and watched. It was pretty good. Well, you, well, you can get free food. That's the kind of a victory, right? <laughs> I'm sort of the Don Strzok of a uh, quarterback, of a uh, sports writer. The Don writers, Strzok huh? of sports writers. <laughs> yeah. Hey, 41 is pretty good. Pretty good, 41, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who's that great. guy for that? Was it Newark? Who's it? Newark? He's a New Jersey Yeah, Newark. Yeah, yeah, Jerry Eisenberg. Jerry Eisenberg. Because, yeah, he's been all. to all, like, 50-whatever of them. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And he still remembers them, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the things I loved in your book was when you asked... Jerry Jones and uh, 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 
Bob, the, the owner formerly known as Bob Kraft, you know, who I still call him. <laughs> he's Robert now. Yeah, I know. He's Robert uh, now. As yeah. a funny aside, the, the PR guy came to me one day and said, you know, a few years ago, you know, Mr. Kraft would really appreciate it if you called him Robert. You know? I said, <laughs> oh, well, is that I, true? Yeah, true story. And I said, well, I'll tell you oh, what. Oh, my. When I met him, he was Bob. And if he goes to court and changes his name to Malik, I'll call him Malik. But right now, he's Bob Kraft to me, bro. <laughs> so it's kind oh, of funny. That's amazing. Now, let yeah. me ask you. I assume this was Stacy, right? Cause yeah, Stacy like, James. Stacey, yeah. I mean, if Stacy James is going to ask you that, I mean, I, I hope he did it with at least a slight wink, or was he dropped it? Not too much. He was pretty earnest with that. You know, and, uh, but I, I think they both knew he's not going to do this. And so the very next time I saw him, I said, Hey Bob, <laughs> that was like the loudest voice I could. You know, well, it was pretty funny. Well, apparently, when you go to when you go to work at a league office, one of the first things you learn is that you know you must address owners as Mister So and So, right? And um, I mean, that's like a serious thing. And I guess if you win a certain number of Super Bowls, you go from Bob to Robert. And if you win more than three, you get initial right. Like he becomes RKK after a while, right? Because right. you know they're big into their initials. But um, <laughs> yeah, whew, yeah, that, that's some pretty crazy. I, I actually at one point when I interviewed Dan Snyder, who I'd never met before, who is um, not the most popular guy here in Washington, D.C., um, I'd heard that he takes it really seriously. He really wants to, he, he cares a lot about the Mr. Snyder thing. So I made a point of saying, what should I call you, sir? Because I really wanted him to say, you have to call me Mr. Snyder so I could write that in the book and make him look like, you know, the kind of SOB that you would expect someone like that to be. So he then, he, he dodged a bullet, though. He said Dan. So that was to his, um, I would say his slight credit. So I, yeah. I quoted him accurately. You're right. Uh, well, one of the things I loved in the book is when you asked Jerry Jones and Bob Kraft uh, if they would trade a Super Bowl victory for a Hall of Fame induction. And Jerry, yes. in my mind, yeah, I'm old, you know, Jerry said that he would, and of course, Robert said he would not. Who's lying? Right. Who's lying? Uh, bro, I would say Robert is probably low. Well, Robert doesn't have the jacket, so he doesn't really, he, I mean, you know, Jones has both. So, right. I, you know, look, there, there is a right answer and a wrong answer to this. And the right answer is, of course, what the, the, the politically correct PR, you know, savvy answer is, which, you know, there's nothing more important than winning a Super Bowl, because that's what your fans want to hear. So, uh, Robert is savvy enough to, sorry, Bob, whatever, is savvy enough to say um, he'll, he'll, nothing's more important than the rings. Jerry, um, you know, to, I think, his credit and to his honesty and possibly to his detriment, um, admitted that he preferred the uh, the jacket. We, we had been drinking a little bit. That, that's in the context of the chapter. But he, um, now, look, he was he was truthful, and, and I appreciate it. I don't know if the fans of, uh, of the Dallas Cowboys did, though. I'll tell you a quick aside to that. The only guy I ever other guy I ever heard tell the truth about that was I said to Dan Marino one time, look, you got every mm-hmm. record in the book, which he did at the time. And I yeah. said, but you haven't won a Super Bowl. Uh, how many of these records would you give up to win a Super Bowl? And he looked at me with a big smile on his face and he goes, man, I would love to have a Super Bowl ring. But I like those records, and that's all he said. <laughs> great. Wow, great. that's great. That's some good. That's really, really good. I have to say, I wish we had talked before the book because between that and the Woody Johnson story you told me earlier by email, which we will not repeat on the air unless you want to, uh, I was very, 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 very. I mean, like I, I have laughed three different times at these things. <laughs> that's so, great. Next book. There's always another edition, right? Hey, there you go. Exactly right. Hey, Mark, I've got a question for you. You're pretty tough on Roger Goodell in this book, and, and <laughs> no explanation yeah. needed here. What, what I want to know yeah. is twofold. Uh, one, have you heard from him or the league office? And two, are you surprised with all the missteps and mistakes that plagued the league on his watch that owners continue to pay him $40 million a year to run this league? Well, the answer to part two is yes, yes, and yes. I mean, I, I would say I have not heard from him in general. I mean, he claims not to read anything, which, of course, is not true, right. but um, – 
Yeah, I mean, he, he, when you say have I heard from the league office, um, you know, does that mean officially or unofficially? I've heard from tons of people at the league office uh, through back channels. And, like, you know, and again, the most gratifying thing you can hear is that, like, wow, you know, well, the commissioner didn't like it, and, you know, a few other people, you know, were, were, were affronted by a few things, but you really got it right. So it, it sort of has, like, it's become like a guilty pleasure inside 345 Park Avenue. So I, I appreciate that. But, no, I, I mean, I think he has, he's just, I mean, he's actually very good at certain things. One of them is um, just sort of buttering up and, and taking care of the needy egos of 32 really, really rich, but also very insecure, uh, mostly old guys. And that's sort of what he does. He's a politician, and he's like a Senate majority leader who has to take care of his, his culture or his caucus. So that's what he does really well. Plus, he makes money. So, I mean, I guess they're going to sort of take care of him. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you that I found really interesting, you discussed a little bit uh, uh, a hybrid of NFL reporting, which I, you labeled the Nugget Industrial Complex. I laughed my ass off when you said that. Uh, I was never yeah. much of a part of that. But uh, yeah. what is it for our listeners, and does it often get to the real core issues of the game? No, I don't think it gets to the core issue of the game. But basically, it's just this rat race of you know trying to be first. I mean, Adam Schefter, you know, Chris Mortensen are kind of best of breed here. I mean, Ian Rappaport of the NFL Network. I mean, basically, if you can be first to tell people that um, I don't know, Greg Hardy's going to sign with the Cowboys, or um, Rob Gronkowski is doubtful on Sunday against whoever. I mean, that's considered a nugget. It's a victory, and everyone else is going to be chasing you. So there's a big market for it, especially in the fantasy leagues, um, and then people are willing to pay a lot of money and spend a lot of time. I'm refreshing their screens to find that out. So that, that's it right there. But it's a bit of a rat race. We have it in politics, Mark. too, by the way. <laughs> Mark, thanks so much for the time. We've got to run. But thanks for the book. <laughs> My pleasure, well. terrific, guys. Terrific read. Yeah, thanks, Mark. It was great. Awesome. Talk to you guys. That was Mark Leibovich, author of Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, we've made our list, and we've checked it twice, and this is what we have. That's the two-minute warning. That's right, it's the Christmas version of the two-minute drill. Bah humbug, no way. It's Rick Goslin calling the shots. So let's get going, Goose. Raiders owner Mark Davis says he has no regrets trading Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper to contending teams. What do Raiders fans believe he lacks, a clue or a conscience? A good barber. Neither. As the scarecrow in Oz said, if he only had a brain... Raiders coach John Gruden has called the play of his quarterback, Derek Carr, astonishing. What would you call it? Losing. Well, you've been sacked 36 times in the last nine games and it hasn't thrown an interception. So I would say gutsy. <laughs> Can defense still win a championship in today's NFL? Can if you have Khalil Mack. That depends on the definition of defense. If forcing a turnover for a 53-52 win, yes. At 35, Frank's course season and very likely his career have ended its months with a foot injury. He ranks fourth on the all-time rushing list behind Emmett Smith, Walter Payton, and Barry Sanders. What's his legacy? You're not going to like this, Goose. Hall of Famer. First ballot. <laughs> is his legacy. Gained a lot of yards, but who knew? <laughs> Friend of the show, Leroy Butler, called out Aaron Rodgers after Green Bay's loss to the Bears. Could the quarterback be the problem with the Packers? Nope, it's a supporting cast, not enough playmakers. I would say if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And lately, he ain't been part of the solution, so... Reports out of Denver indicate John Elway wants to bring Mike Shanahan back as coach. Are you buying or selling this one? Selling! The only Mike I want to hear from is Ditka. Ditka. Coach Ditka. 
He's 66, and he went 24 and 40 in four years with the Redskins. He hasn't been seen in five years. That's the reason to not do this. Has Greg Williams earned the right to be the Browns coach in 2019? Yeah, of course. Everyone not named Hugh Jackson has the right. <laughs> As the great Bill Parcells says, go by what you see. He went 17 and 31 in Buffalo. Four and two. Doesn't change the record. Stay away. Who gets enshrined in the Hall of Fame first, Tom Brady or Todd Rundgren? Uh, Brady, more proof that life is not fair. <laughs> what position did Todd Rundgren play? Center at Nebraska? <laughs> Lead guitar. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Bill Kilmer, Mark Leibovich, and John Eisenberg for joining us, Shea Raftus, for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to catch this or any podcast, just go to our website, themaven.io slash talkoffame, or find us on iTunes, your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. Merry Christmas, everyone. 